Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, team. Appreciate it. Thank you, Pastor Dennis. Uh, this morning is unlike any other Easter that you've experienced. I know that most of you would have loved to see one another today in this building, would have liked to dress up in the pretty little dresses, the girls and the women as well. The men would even try to dress up a little bit more than normal. But as uh, Courtney had mentioned, that we would encourage you, if you know how to on Facebook, I have to be honest, I don't even know how to do this, but to actually attach your picture. Take a picture of yourselves, make sure to do that while we're moving along, because we want to encourage you as we continue in this time uh, together. And so it's important for us uh, to recognize that this year is a new year. Um, it's different. We're on a detour. We've recognized that for the past four weeks how this detour has not only affected us within our local areas, it has affected us in our states, in our nation, and all around the world. I don't know if I can remember of a time such as this where it's affected us. And so I just want to encourage you, um, if you are looking, you're watching, um, we welcome you to today at Grace Church. If you're from outside of the state and you're not from Maryland, we would still want to encourage you to continue uh, to just make those comments on Facebook. Well, you know, we are on this sermon series called Detours. And we were talking about it for the last couple of weeks of different signs when you're driving. And you might see, um, you know, mile ahead an accident or mile ahead construction, uh, different turns left or right. And we were talking about how when you make a turn and you're on that detour that you don't want to fall off and try to look for a way to get out of it. You don't want to fix the problem. You don't want to try to get off that road that you're on to get back to the normal road. You want to stay on that detour. Well, I can tell you from a person who grew up in the city, um, even near New York City, Whenever I would get lost or I wasn't sure where I was going, if I was in a certain section of New York, I knew it was troublesome when I went to go to try to find the next town, you know, next, uh, you know, road. And what I would do is that when I was trying to find the next road, I would have to make a one-way turn. And it would have to take me into a different direction away from where I needed to go. And it would be frustrating. One way can be good in some ways, but not always when you're lost and you're trying to drive around. Or think about it today when you're going into a store and they're only allowed so many people in each of the stores. They've, you know, they started this ban, this regulation, this restriction now where we can only be so many people and you have to wait in line to get in. And there's only one way to get into the store. And sometimes when we like to have multiple ways to get into a building or multiple ways to get around on a street, it's very challenging when you're thinking about one way. Because it sometimes can be a little bit cruel. Like we really got to go through this way. When somebody hears about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that truly is only one way, and that one way is called the exclusive message of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus, most people would say, well, that sounds kind of cruel for God to do that, to be just one way. And so today we want to talk about how that one way is because Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So as I was looking through this past week in studying, I recognized an individual by the name of Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ, a self-proclaiming atheist who came to faith in Jesus. He was an investigative reporter, and he investigated the evidence of the gospel or the evidence of what we know as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And as he did so, as an atheist, he came across, as he investigated, 
that it was without, undeniably true, that Jesus Christ not only died, but that he rose from the dead and that the tomb is empty. And so he shared four categories that I want to share with you. And then at the end, I want to share about the fourth one that is really just captivating because it would just take away any thought or theory, any conspiracy theory, any thought that maybe the disciples tried to do something different or tried to hide the body of Jesus, that ultimately that the tomb is empty because of an important part of what God allowed by sending his son. So I just want to encourage you as we're thinking about detours and we're thinking about the one way of Jesus Christ, now we're thinking about the evidence of the resurrection of Christ. The first thing that we have to understand is that the first category is that Jesus was dead, meaning did he die? Most would say it was possible that he didn't, that he was in hiding, that it was all a hoax, that the disciples just tried to play everyone. But I don't know if that's possible to even claim that because some would say, I don't believe the Bible is true. Well, even Lee Strobel said this. He says, we have no record of anyone anywhere ever surviving a full Roman crucifixion. Nowhere in history, anyone. And Jesus was crucified. A Roman crucifixion was placed on a cross, innocent lamb, and he died. And the scriptures are clear. But there's nowhere in history that they can claim that anyone can go through that. Also this, there was a, the Journal of the American Medical Association. What they did was they did a peer review of a medical study to just to see the evidence of the resurrection, the evidence of the crucifixion of Christ. And this is what they said. They said, clearly the weight of evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound in his side was inflicted. So even so, the Journal of American Medical Association even indicates that. We even have uh, what was called a leading atheist, a leading atheist New Testament scholar who said this, historically, now we're talking about the historical Jesus, so historically it's, it's indisputable that Jesus was dead. So we have a person who doesn't even believe in Christ, but yet as a scholar he recognizes that the evidence is clear historically that Jesus Christ died. So as Christians, we know that that is part of our faith, that he died on the cross for our sin. And for those who may refute that, I mean, even atheists didn't refute it. Number two, another category. There were early accounts for the resurrection of Jesus. So here's what it's saying. I just want to just share this and what that means. That means that when the accounts were early, they were within the first three years of the time that he died, when the event occurred. And when you look at historicity and you look at historical evidence, you want to get as close to the actual evidence or the, 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 the occurrence of what happened, the event. And when you get there, what happens is you start to see that there's historical data, information, not just the Bible, but even scholars and others who also claim that it's undeniable that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But we're going to just share some from the scriptures. And so I just want to share that Jesus said it himself. In Luke 24, 44 through 49, he says this. And then he said to them, to the disciples, this is after he rose from the dead, these are my words that I have spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Verse 46, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead. 
And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. And he was referring to the Holy Spirit that has come to the time of Pentecost when the inauguration of the church. And so we see that Jesus said it. Then we see Peter. Peter himself has said it. He says it in the accounts of the book of Acts. He says it in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 2. He says, this Jesus, speaking to the Jews, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then goes on further to say in verse 29 through 32, as they were talking about David in the Old Testament, the continuity that would bring forth in the New Testament, brothers, I may say to you in confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God has sworn with an oath for him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So now the disciples are all witnesses. It's an early account. And then we go on further to say Paul himself says it. He says it which we would know as a creed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3 through 4. This is a creed that most would look to in the scriptures. And I'll share with you in just a moment that even atheist New Testament scholars would even claim that there was a creed, that a formulation of the creed that was just right around the 30 to 33, just as he died and just within three years, that as the disciples were proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, that a creed was coming along similar to what this is being stated here. This was written in around the 50, 60 AD, but here's the statement. For I delivered to you as of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scripture, that he was buried, that he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. But here, Gerd Ludemann says, who's an atheist New Testament professor in reference to 1 Corinthians 15, says that the elements in the tradition are to be dated to the first two years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, this is an atheist who claims the historicity, the historical evidence that Jesus himself was crucified and that he rose from the dead. He doesn't believe in it, but he sees the evidence there. And he goes on saying, not later than three years. The formation of the appearance, traditions mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, falls into the time between 30 and 33, common era, C.E., So he even recognized, he's saying there are formations of it, of the traditions. Not that that actual statement, but that the gospel was already being established even in words, in a passage, to say that it was being presented. Because it was, in the book of Acts we see that. Even Robert Funk, a non-Christian scholar, founder of the Jesus Seminar, says this, the conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead had already taken root by the time Paul was converted at about 33 CE. On the assumption that Jesus died about 30 CE, the time for development was thus two or three years at most. So we have not only the accounts of the scriptures, but we have scholars who recognize that the gospel was already present during that time. Wow. Although they don't trust in Christ, 
the evidence is clear. And as Lee Strobel's saying that he was an investigative reporter, he was saying the evidence is clear. Even more sources that I can't even list would, would say that Jesus Christ. Now, to you as a believer, you would say, oh, of course, I know that already, Bruno. I know that he rose from the dead. I know that it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we're going to go a little bit further than that. We're just not simply creating an evidence or a sense of a report here or a verdict that he is God. We know that. We recognize that even in the scriptures. We know that in our own lives. But there's more to say. Because here's where the evidence even goes further. There were witnesses. There were eyewitnesses. There were eyewitnesses. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8. Let me read that to you. And that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, it says. Though some have fallen asleep, he mentioned. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, is what Paul said. You know, another scripture that's written even from Acts 1-3 with Luke, our brother, he says this, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So we see that in the scriptures. We see that there were eyewitnesses. I mean, even further in history, we see Josephus. He writes in the Jewish antiquities, a non-Christian Jewish scholar who recognizes that Jesus died on, died on the cross and he rose from the dead. I mean, even, and even Tachesus says this, the same thing, the same in his writing, and that was in around that 116 A.D., so they're scholars, they're church historians, they're church fathers who identified that Jesus Christ both died and he rose from the dead. Many would even say um, that it was possible that the disciples, it was, it was called the conspiracy theory, that the disciples probably hid his body, put it in another grave, so that when they tried to open up the grave, they were able to do it themselves. They were able to make sure that the tomb was empty and they were taking the body of Jesus. Um, They're even saying that there was a hallucinist theory of where they were having, you know, these dreams. And, but even a psychologist, a known psychologist, stated that if the disciples had some kind of dream or they were hallucinating, it's impossible for 500 people to see him at the same time and to dream like that. It's impossible. In fact, the psychologist said that, you know what, it would take a miracle for that to happen, not alone the miracle of the empty tomb. And so there's so much evidence here to recognize that Jesus Christ, he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. So as we see all this evidence, we have the fourth one. The tomb was empty. To this day, they see it and it's empty, obviously. But back then, they were concerned. The Jews were concerned. The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the chief priests. Pilate, who was, again, sending him to his death, they were concerned. But I say this. Why would you be concerned about someone who claims to be the Messiah? If you don't believe he's the Messiah, why would you be concerned? Why would you think that they were concerned the disciples would play a trick on them? So they tried to control that. And I'll tell you that there's some evidence here, even in the scripture, 
that just highlights Matthew 27, 6, 30, uh, 27, 64. It says this, therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first one. And again, the last fraud was that he claimed to be God and the one that's worse is that he's going to rise from the dead. So they were concerned. They even went so, further, so much further as that in verses 65 and 66. It says, Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, let me think again. The guard is said to be around up to 50 men. So they have 50 men potentially around this tomb guarding it. And they're concerned that a bunch of tax collectors, fishermen, could actually move a stone that's 3,000 pounds. That's a whole nother story. That would take a miracle. And if that would take a miracle, I don't think God was the one that wanted the disciples to do that because they probably wouldn't even have believed it. See, God removed the stone. The angels came to remove the stone. It was God who did. It was God who sent his son. It was God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead. We understand that, but it would take a miracle. And then they had to seal the stone to make sure that if anyone were to even consider going in and opening up the tomb, that they would be prosecuted and killed. So they set a guard. But then they went even further, because after the event, they went even further. And they had to get paid because after the event and the tomb was empty and the stone was rolled away, it goes on further to say that the soldiers had to be paid off to lie. Now, what blows my mind in the mindset of these chief priests and Pharisees, they claim to be zealous for God, yet they're lying. (laughs) They're lying about this whole event just to protect themselves and they're paying people off just like they did with Judas. Now, I don't know, would we really want to represent God in that way? I mean, think about it. I mean, here it says, even in Matthew 28, 11 through 15, it says, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples that came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. How could they do that? It's impossible. They couldn't move a 3,000-pound stone. It's just foolishness. And then they go on to say this, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of the trouble. Because if they get caught, they're going to be killed. If they get caught. So they came up with some scam, a story. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day, as he mentions. Now we're coming to the last part. The tomb is empty, John 20, 1 through 9. We understand the story. We know after the death, it says, Now at the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, which is John, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they had laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. And both of them were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. But he didn't go in. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there. He did not go in. Then Simon, Peter came following him and went to the tomb. And he said 
And he saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been there. And Jesus said, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by himself. And here's the key verse. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, John, also went in and he saw and believed. Let me say it again. He saw and he believed. See, it's not enough to just make evidence to have the historicity, the historical evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But he went so far as to saying that he believed. See, the empty tomb means much more than just an event. It's not something we just celebrate once a year. It's not something where we put our nice clothes on and we listen to the same songs and we just travel around and spend great time together with family. That's not really what Resurrection Day is about. It's great to do that. Don't get me wrong. Don't throw tomatoes at me right now because you can't so I can say it. But let me tell you something. It's bigger than that. He believed. And when he believed, the tomb was empty. That's our faith. See, that's the victory. The victory is that the tomb is empty. The victory is quite clear. Because what the victory is, is that it's victory over sin. It's over the sin that is a penalty of sin, the power of sin, and ultimately the presence of sin. And it's victory over death. Death no longer has a sting on us. We don't have to fear because when we die, we'll be in his presence. It's victory over Satan because he no longer has a hold on us. The power of sin no longer has a hold on us. There's that victory that we can walk and we can have excitement and power and we can live empowered with passion and pursuit. We can live with an excitement that says we can make a difference and reach someone else. See, it's about believing in Christ every day. It's about believing in the victory, that death no longer has arrested us, that our life begins. See, Easter is about new beginnings. And I think we have the opportunity, even today, to trust that God has victory. He's overcome it. He's overcome it. And now it's completely done. It's paid in full. And now for all that's been going, we've been going through with coronavirus, for people that are passing on at a rapid rate. People will go into eternity. And the Bible says when we die, there will be judgment. But what an opportunity this would be if you would use today to know that you can trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. See, the tomb is empty because he overcame death. The tomb is empty because he overcame sin. The tomb is empty, and now we have the opportunity to have life, new life, and it can be setting us free so we no longer have to be separated eternally from God. That's the hope. You know, right now, the band is going to come up to play a couple of songs. And as they do, I want to encourage you. They're going to play two songs, and then I'm going to come back. So don't, don't leave us because we want to share with you the importance of the gospel and how important that is for someone today who can trust in Jesus.